Hello again, spoops, and welcome to another episode. I am your resident spooky drag queen, Pissy Miles. And I'm your resident spooky smartass, Sam Baxter. And, and this, this is, is my, my spooky, spooky gay, gay family. Well, hello, Sam. Hello, Pissy. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Uh, so far, so good. <clears throat> I'm feeling a bit sleepy today, uh, but I'm I'm working through it. I'm I'm getting through on fumes, I guess. I haven't eaten a fucking thing today. I've had like little <laughs> snacks. I had a, a cheese stick before when we were recording the mini-sode. Anyone who was listening obviously knows. Uh, I had a couple bites of... David had... David got these... Um, like Jamaican meat pies. Oh yeah, no, the frozen ones. The frozen ones. Uh and they are quite delicious. I will say I don't think I like them prepared in a microwave. They taste very like doughy. Um and so I had a couple bites of those, like like l- literally two or three bites. Uh and I had a little bit of peanut butter earlier mm-hmm. in the afternoon. But that's all I've eaten today, and it is 11 o'clock at night, and I'm like, Jesus Christ, I need to eat something ASAP. Um, But I think I'm going to make tacos tonight. That sounds fun. I think tonight after this, I'm going to make myself some chicken tacos. I earned it. You did. I did. I admire your strength. My strength? (laughs) Is it strength if you just go a whole day without eating anything and then binge at the end? Um. The answer is no, don't do that. It's bad for you. But then on top of it, I'm like, I'm positive. And I was saying this before, I'm absolutely positive. Because I'm like nodding off as we're talking. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, I know the second I eat something, my eyes are just going to like shoot open. And I'm going to be like, I need to run a marathon. Because it's like, (laughs) my body is just at a calorie deficit. It's not that like, I had this like particularly exhausting day it's just me being an asshole who doesn't eat on time uh what are you up to these days just work you know it's the same it's the same thing every week i worked all week and then i did this and then you tried to take over the world yep (laughs) the same thing we do every week (laughs) pissy uh well that's exciting we do have some fun stuff to talk to you guys about today we're gonna jump into the episode pretty quick because we have a really, really, really fun episode for you guys this week. We have a very special guest, and I'll get to uh, some introductions in just a little bit. But before we do get into the main content of this week's episode, we do want to wish a very, very happy birthday to Eddie, who happens to be Melissa Jacobs, one of our, our faithful patrons over on Patreon. Uh, today, this very day, the 15th, is uh, his birthday birthday and we would like to wish him a very very happy birthday it also happens to be their one year anniversary so happy anniversary to both of you we uh, are very happy to have you guys and and happy that you guys are celebrating such a wonderful anniversary and a very happy birthday to eddie yes (laughs) 
don't know. Sure. No, that's fine. Uh, we're we're just sending you guys a lot of Happy love birthday. and, and uh, excited for you. Um, I have some fun news. Okay. Last week on the main episode, I shared that Bigfoot story mm-hmm. uh, that was sent in from a user on Instagram. Uh, their name is Elsie, and uh, their 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 Instagram handle is nope dot I don't think so dot nah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and they sent in that amazing Bigfoot story. They did send in uh, some follow-up. Okay. So we have some follow-up to the story and a new story from LC. Uh, and I read this because they they sent it to the Instagram and I, I read all of the Instagram DMs. So I read this and I was like, we have to read this on, on the next episode because it's crazy. LC has a, a crazy life. <laughs> So I'm just going to read you what Elsie sent in. Um, Elsie said, Mwahahaha, loved the episode, spot on with the pronouns and the pronunciation of Rugaru. Props, and then a winky face. Cajun country is fun. And I did, in asterisks, grow up in South Louisiana, LOL, yes, tis true. You did a fantastic telling of the story. I loved it. Extra info. For something to see their reflection in that window, they would have to be over six feet tall. Make spooky sounds. (laughs) Because we had said that uh, maybe it was possible that if it was a Bigfoot, it saw its reflection in the window and attacked the window. But she's saying that for something to have seen its reflection in that window, it would have to be over six feet tall. So another another tally mark for for Bigfoot. <laughs> they, excuse me, excuse me, I said that I said she and I meant they. Um they said feel free to follow me on here and I will ask the owners if there was uh, any broken glass or ominous uh sounds. Also, since you asked for more, may I present my somewhat ghost story? Okay. A few years ago, I was just friggin' exhausted of hopping from job to job, part-time library work, book selling, waiting tables, bartending, doggy daycares, you name it, I did it, and rent was always a huge stressor. So I applied to be a live-in caretaker at a historical mansion out in the foothills. Free housing? Count me in. I scored an interview. I drove an hour out of town and through a deep forest, the road steadily inclining. It sounds like a horror movie. I know. <laughs> it sounds like the beginning of the Mortuary Collection, doesn't it? <laughs> yes. I scored an interview. I drove an hour out of town and through a deep forest, the road steadily inclining as the elevation rose and it began bending into switchback turn after switchback turn, climbing steadily higher. There was no cell service at all for about a five-mile radius around the mansion. The grounds were beautiful, heavily forested, and completely devoid of people. I drove up a long dirt road leading towards the main house. It was uncannily quiet. I had a panel interview with three older women in a side room of the mansion that had a large mahogany table that we all sat around. We went through your standard interview questions, why do you want this job, etc., Then the questions tentatively hinged on new territory for me, like, are you okay living completely alone up here for 90% of the time? It gets very dark out here. You cannot call out as there is no service. Is that okay with you? (laughs) (laughs) No one will come any nearer than that. (laughs) In the night, in the dark. Um, 
Are you comfortable with outdoor safety and wildlife safety as we do get cougars and bears out here very regularly? Okay. The three women were all watching me very intently as I assured them that I was familiar and comfortable with living in rural areas of the mountains. I must have passed whatever prerequisites they were watching for because the room then got very quiet. The women looked meaningfully at one another. Then the woman in charge looked directly at me and slowly asked, Is there anything that you are particularly afraid of? (laughs) And I I was reading this and I was like, is she Pennywise? I don't understand. (laughs) They said, this is a new job interview question for me. And alarm bells started going off somewhere in the back of my brain. Just as carefully, I asked her, well, what do you mean? I suddenly felt the need to keep my cards close to my chest. (laughs) There is a presence here in the house, she stated. Like a ghost, I asked. A specter. It's a female presence. I've seen her twice, a somewhat translucent apparition materializing above the stairs. Things happen here. We don't think she's malevolent, but mainly at night, doors slam when there is no one else in the house, largely upstairs, but things also get moved out of place, knocked off shelves, switches turned the wrong way. We think she's angry, but she hasn't hurt anyone. (laughs) We think she's angry, but she hasn't heard anyone. <laughs> Why don't you test it? <laughs> also, there are cougars and bears. <laughs> oh, my. This sounds like the perfect job. I, I want this job. Cougars and ghosts and bears. Oh, my. Uh, she didn't quite meet my eye as she said that last part. <laughs> can't imagine why. (laughs) My brain was going overtime, trying to figure out if these women were just straight up fucking with me. (laughs) But they all looked deadly serious and none of them had displayed any any propensity towards humor so far. Why did the person last in this position leave? I asked cautiously. There were a lot of vagaries suddenly. uh, There were a lot of vagaries suddenly murmured that landed on he retired. The later when they were giving me a tour of the on-site apartment that I would live in should I get the position, she let slip that the former caretaker was younger than me. I was 28. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't think he retired. It was... I was definitely willing to live with an angry lady apparition deep in the woods with no cell service for free room and board. A hundred percent, without a doubt. We can start an angry lady club. I don't fucking care. I'm tired of being broke. Alas, I did not get the position. They gave it to a big, burly, retired cop. But I tried. Maybe one day. (laughs) I was like, I wrote back and I was like, I am so desperately sad that you did not get this position (laughs) because I would have loved nothing more than to hear the stories of this angry lady. Right. Who is apparently an angry ghost lady who is possessed by a cat. (laughs) Just like knocking shit off shelves, slamming doors, turning lights off and yelling. That's a cat. Yes, it is. This old lady ghost is a cat. Um, I was seriously waiting for, and then two of the women disappeared. <laughs> like two out of three of these old biddies were just. And she's like, "I've always been here alone, my dear." Um. Yeah. So, uh, thank you, LC. I love, love, love that you're sending us all of your spooky stories. If you're listening and you have one, send them in because we want to hear them desperately. Uh, that said. I want to jump right into our episode this week because we do have a very extensive uh, interview coming up for you this week. We have one of the premier 
queens in the country, if I'm being honest. Um, but certainly in San Francisco, she is a San Francisco legend. She has uh, appeared in documentaries. She has appeared in docuseries and television shows. She has made movies of her own. She has produced live events ranging from uh, the famous Midnight Mass at the Bridge Theater all the way to um, her own parody stage shows and new horror shows at at the the San Francisco Mint, including Terror Vault and a new one coming up this year. Uh, we have the amazing and incomparable Peaches Christ joining us today for an interview. And we're going to be chatting about a lot of stuff, everything from her career to her um, amazing, amazing movie, All About Evil, uh, all the way down to our mutually favorite cult classic <laughs> favorite Rocky Horror. So um, definitely stick around. We are going to be jumping in with an interview with Peaches Christ. So uh, here we go. Enjoy, kids. Hello, hello, Peaches Christ. Hi. <laughs> How are you doing? I am doing so well. So thrilled to be here. It's good to see you all. It's good to see you. I haven't. I can't even remember the last time I like spoke to you face to face. It has probably been years. Yeah, maybe <laughs> at this point, one of the drag con shows. I feel like maybe that was the last time. Probably it was. Uh, I did, were you at uh, New York Drag Con in twenty nineteen? No, I was at Wigstock though. Oh, that it was. It was Wigstock. Whenever that happened, yeah. It, it, <laughs> it probably was Wigstock. I think Wigstock was 2018. I feel like it was 2018. Yeah, 2018, something, something like that. <laughs> Long yeah. enough ago that they were able to make a movie. Um, right. <laughs> how have you been? How are things out in San Francisco? Things are well. Yeah, I mean. Considering that, you know, just over a year ago, uh, you know, <laughs> my my calendar was wiped clean and my career vanished <laughs> right before my eyes. Uh, yeah. You know, all all things considered, um, it, it has been a, you know, COVID obviously has been horrible. But but my pivot I've really enjoyed, which is uh, it's been a time of writing and creating and developing new projects and really like being able to like dive in in a way that I never was able to before because I was always, you know, doing shows and touring mm -hmm. or whatever. So um, I've actually quite enjoyed it. I mean, I'm not, you know, rich. But <laughs> 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 I've certainly had to learn how to like, you know, eat at home and, you know, buckle down. <laughs> it's been worth it because I have all these projects that I'm excited about. Yeah. David and I felt exactly the same way. It was like, I had this crazy calendar, especially because like the very end of 2019, it was what, November? I went to the the impeachment. Yeah, <laughs> and so like everything wow. was like blowing up. And then all of a sudden it was just like somebody pulled the emergency break <laughs> and we were like, oh, yeah. it was crazy. Um, so I know exactly how you feel. I actually, um, Jackie, I, I, Jackie Beat had posted something on Instagram and it was that scene from... 
uh, jo- the Joan Rivers documentary when she shows her calendar and it's like just a blank white page and she's like, this is scary. And I was like, and yeah. I, I commented, so I, I was, it was such a stupid comment. I was like, I was like, that's like every drag queen in New York right now. And, and the only time she's ever written back to me was when she wrote every drag queen everywhere in all caps. And that was it. <laughs> So we're we're all kind of suffering through it. And I mean, Sam is a writer, so, you know. I mean, I work from home. The only difference between this year and last year is now I was afraid to go out of my house. It wasn't. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Her commute's always been the same. That'll be an interesting thing later in life when we all tell our pandemic stories, because I think everyone was affected. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. Everyone was affected, but it, it, for all of us, it's 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 taken different shapes and forms. You know, like I have friends whose life I feel like me and my partner um, find, finding ourselves unemployed was actually kind of this wonderful thing. At, in retrospect, you know, mm-hmm. because it, we ended up creating all these things that we wouldn't have created. Whereas my friends, especially my friends with families who did not lose their jobs, but then had their entire family stuck under a roof. And they also had to then become teachers for their children and <laughs> things like that. That that was hell. You know, so it's like, you know, <laughs> losing your job might not be the worst thing in the world. The worst thing in the world might be stuck at home with teenagers. Exactly. You, know? <laughs> you have little nieces and nephews, right? I do, yeah. Just I have uh, one tiny little nephew, uh, <laughs> Luke, and then I have two. I guess you would say step nieces. You know, they're, nie- oh, okay. they're, they're nieces by marriage, um, but I <laughs> love them just the same. Exactly. Exactly. Are, are they all yeah. like little kids? The the nieces are now teenagers. Oh wow. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and Luke, my nephew, is two, and my sister. Uh, never, she, she actually never lost her job. So I think, you know, I was watching her situation where she's working from home and her job is she's basically Dr. Gallo's right hand gal. And Dr. Gallo is the, the famous doctor who discovered HIV in the United States. And so, you know, Alan Alda played him in the, and, and the band played on. So he is the head of the Institute for Virology. So you could imagine that <laughs> your job, if you are the Institute of Virology and there's a global pandemic, my sister was having Zoom meetings with Dr. Fauci while her, the ki- kids are screaming, you know, in the background. Like, <laughs> so I'm looking at her life going like, I'm going to write a horror movie today, you know. <laughs> and then I'm going to bake a cake and go to bed early. And she's like, she's like that guy who was on the BBC when he's like, literally on yeah. the BBC and the kids are like coming in and, and pulling the, the house down and she's trying yeah. to cure coronavirus. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, you know, with, yeah. That's insane. So, what a crazy yeah, job. They couldn't send kids to daycare. They couldn't send them to school, you know? And so, yeah, no, she, I mean, I really admire her. Yeah. One of the, well, I remember once she, Oh, I probably shouldn't say this, but let's just say <laughs> she, she, Maybe has inappropriately um, Zoom captured some of her meetings, you know, where she's speaking with very famous kind of celebrity people, mm-hmm. you know, or helping to, you know, because behind the scenes, they actually did engage celebrities to try to help message things because people weren't, how should I say this? Well, it's no, no, 
no secret that we yeah. had terrible leadership in this country and you know the the administration in charge was fucking up royally <laughs> so that you know our 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 government was actually reaching out to celebrities behind the scenes because they couldn't trust the white house you know to get the message out so this is like what my sister is working on you know <laughs> while you know, while while dealing with a house full of kids you know who are having normal kid problems, you know? Exactly. She's like, she's like, I need you to make your peanut butter and jelly on your own. I'm talking to Dolly Parton. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Not Dolly. Hey, why not? Yeah. Because, you know, Dolly was hard at work on that, uh, that vaccine. The so. Moderna vaccine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's the one I got. I'm very proud to say. Is it? I'm kind of jealous. Yeah. I got Pfizer. So I'm like, yeah, it's a great shot. But Dolly had, didn't touch it. So who wants <laughs> yeah. it? You got the Bill Gates. You got the the microchipped one. That's yeah. that's the one you got. I did, and I was saying to uh, I was saying at my show the other night. Everyone was like, "Oh, did you see any weird side effects?" I was like, "No, I haven't had any weird side effects. I mean, my my wireless goes twenty more feet, but who cares? I have better reception <laughs> in the living room." There you go. <laughs> so that's great. You and Sam, have you been vaccinated? Yes, also Pfizer. Mm-hmm. Oh, wonderful. We both. I, I actually- I have oh, this I'm, moment I'm sorry. where it was like, what if Sam tells me that vaccines are dangerous? Like, <laughs> where, does, where does the podcast go from here, you know? <laughs> You're like, oh my God, I have to spend another 45 minutes explaining to these people why vaccines are important. <laughs> no, no, I went and got the shot. I was actually lucky. I didn't get sick from it at all. My wife was laid up for like 48 hours with it after she got it. You really, not even the second one? No, not at all. Like, we, my we arm both... hurt a little. That was it. That's so crazy. Yeah. We both got our second dose this week. I got mine on Tuesday. She got hers on Wednesday, right? Yeah. And mine laid me flat on my ass. She's like, <laughs> she's immune to everything, I guess. <laughs> yeah. That's, it's been the same here uh, with the Moderna one as well. My partner got much sicker than I did. But what we, we were sort of tracking it. And I think because I got mine later in the day, like I got mine around 4.30 or so, hmm. I started to feel sick. 24 hours, 28 hours later. So I just basically was able to go, you know what? I'm going to bed. I'm putting myself to bed. Mm-hmm. And I did go to bed and I did wake up and like my shirt was wet. You know, like I felt <laughs> like it was fevery. You know, it was gross. Yeah. But by the time I made it, you know, I slept through the next morning, I was fine. Whereas his um, side effects, because he got his in the morning, early in the morning, mm-hmm. they kicked in around the same amount of time that mine did. But then he was dealing with it all day long. You know, he felt shitty all day long. So, you know, but it's worth it. Hey, that's what I said. I mean, the effects and I I usually try like when I'm talking to an audience or something, I try to like say the effects because I want to like convey to them. No, these are expected. Like this is an expected autoimmune response to the vaccine. It's not like it's not like a weird side effect that it triggered. It's like something you're supposed to feel. And that's what we've. This is literally how it works. Yeah. In some ways. I think if you have those feelings, you know, if I were Sam and I had nothing, I'd be worried. Did they give me a dud? Is it bad? I actually was a little bit. (laughs) Because when Sarah got so sick, I was like, oh, no. (laughs) Did they give me a placebo? (laughs) It's much scarier if you don't get sick. Exactly. She got saline. We all got the good stuff. Exactly. (laughs) But anyway, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, I'm very excited that you uh, 
got the Moderna vaccine. Um, and speaking of the Moderna vaccine, let's talk about your whole life, Peaches Christ. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's do it. Uh, I'm just going to jump right in. We have a lot of shit to talk to you about. Obviously, we're very excited to have you here because you are a a lifelong fan of the horror genre, and you have you have loved everything spooky and creepy and ooky and and crazy your whole life and that was one of the first things that you and david and i first bonded over was our our mutual love of horror um yeah so i'm very excited to chat with you about about your life today and how that kind of came to be uh you were born in you were born in maryland right i was actually born in washington dc but Mm. uh you know, I didn't ever live in the district. I was just born in the district and grew up in Maryland. Yeah. In Maryland. What were you? Did you grow up in Baltimore? No, uh, actually outside of Baltimore and D.C. in Annapolis, uh, which is oh. the uh, where the Naval Academy is. Yeah. So it's, a, it's a beautiful about, city. It's yeah, it's really, you know, I have to say, like growing up there, I resented it and hated it because I wanted to be in D.C. or Baltimore, <laughs> yeah. you know, um, <laughs> But D.C. and Baltimore were like literally a 25 minute drive from Annapolis, 20 minute drive, you know, depending Mm -hmm. on where you were going. Um, So it was actually a perfect place to grow up because it was charming and nice. And but all I saw was like, you know, the Naval Academy and yuppies and white people. And I wanted to be, you know, with with interesting people in the cities. But the good news was there were cities like right there. You know, Mm -hmm. that was how I felt growing up, because I was I was kind of the same way. I grew up thinking like, oh, my God, I can't wait for the day I can move to New York City because we grew up here in New Jersey. And I was like, yeah. I can't, once I can get out, I'm out of here. I'm going to New York. I'm doing this. And then after I graduated college, it was like, I spent two years on the grind in New York city, trying to like get work as an actor and do shit. And I was like, I never, <laughs> I was like, I, it, it becomes so ex- exhaustive and, and, uh, overwhelming. Sometimes I actually now prefer to live out in not I don't prefer suburbia but I definitely prefer a little bit of like solitude a little bit of I, I like to be away from things I like I like the trees <laughs> um when you're growing up in Maryland obviously you loved like spooky stuff as a kid you were really into Halloween right yeah I mean it's it, it's the thing that get, I get asked about the most um I think because of, you know, being such a big horror lover and spook, you know, all of the stuff I love is centered around, you know, cult movies and spooky stuff. And no one who knows me remembers me not being into it. So I don't really know, you know, at what point I started expressing that. But even my parents are like, oh, yeah, you just always, always were drawn to that. And you know, Halloween was my favorite thing, you know, absolutely more important than Christmas. And, you know, even even like before I was really into horror movies, I liked things that were spooky, you know, t- TV shows that were spooky, um, cartoons that were spooky, ghost stories. You know, um, I was, you know, obsessed with like the Haunted Mansion at Disney World before we ever even went to Disney World. You know, I had a record. <laughs> that played the sounds of the haunted mansion as a little kid, you know? Um, so yeah, I don't know why, but that's always just been in inside me. I, I wonder what it is that cued it in. Did you have any like spooky experiences as a 
kid? Like, did you have ghosts in your house or like weird no. shit? No. And you know, I, I wonder, this is going to sound even weirder, but I've been watching these shows about like people who have long lost twins that they never knew existed and, you know, twins that are separated at birth. And what I find really fascinating about those um, stories where scientists are looking at these twins is they often have the same taste in pop culture, the same taste in movies, the same taste. So it's like, maybe we truly are just born this way. You know, like maybe my interest in spooky stuff is from some past life or whatever, <laughs> because when twins, you know, who grew up in totally different environments and were separated at birth, still like the same shit, you know, and are tr attracted to the same kind of people and, you know, whatever. Um, I don't know, maybe, maybe, cause I don't think anything really happened. And because I grew up with siblings, none, neither of them were very interested in any of this. If anything, they just put up with my, you know, <laughs> I think they have an appreciation for it because they grew up with me. And so I always put them in my shows and my haunted houses and my movies. Um, and I always showed them movies, you know, um, and kind of took control over the VCR and everything. So I think they appreciate it, but they were never like, if it weren't for me, they would never have pursued it. You know, how funny. So yeah. you're, you're saying horror is genetic is what you're saying. <laughs> I wonder if it is. I wonder if the things that we like, I also look back on my life now and I go, Oh my God, I thought I was closeted even before I like told myself that I was queer. I can look back on the things that I was interested in and the stuff that I liked, the pop culture, the, all of it was queer, <laughs> you know? So it was like, it was all spooky stuff, horror stuff. And then, you know, as far as pop stars and music and, you know, like I listened to Erasure and, you know, like, like Erasure, like, when I was a kid, you know, yeah. like the Pet Shop Boys, you know, like um, Depeche Mode, Madonna, you know, Cindy Lauper. Like, I think sometimes like what, because it's like, well, I wasn't going to gay clubs as a 10 year old, you know, <laughs> I did. I did somehow know that that music spoke to me, you know, mm. that it spoke to me in a very specific way. None of my peers were listening to the Pet Shop Boys. I had no idea that the Pet Shop Boys were two gay men. You know, it's a really interesting thing to look back on it and go, God, we are these people from almost from birth, you know? And and in such a strange kind of like uh, tied together way that like so many people have those experiences. Because even when we were kids, we were drawn to Cindy Lauper and uh, people like Melissa Etheridge. I mean, we grew up in in the '90s, so like just slightly after you. But it, right. it was it was like the same experience where it's like you find these uh, from a young age. I loved Culture Club, and didn't know why. I didn't know what it was about right. Boy George that really spoke to me, but uh, I I loved really? it. And I, <laughs> I mean, now I, mean, I, I do. One a little more on the nose. <laughs> I was wearing a face full of makeup. I know, and it, I was obsessed with that shit. Like as a kid, I remember in in if you were to go back through like my middle school notebooks now, you'll see I was like drawing these like feminine eyes with these like highly arched eyebrows and just like 
this like intricate makeup and i was like i was like who was this kid like wh- yeah. my and my dad still had the nerve to be shocked but um and sam was asking for a power drill for Christmas. Wearing flannel know? and Doc Martens. <laughs> very, very early age. I mean, let's just face it, we're all just a bunch of stereotypes. That's what we are. A collective stereotype. <laughs> I like stereotypes. the stereotypes, though. <laughs> so do I. I think they're good for us. I, I, I like them, too. I mean, obviously, I know that we... Uh, that you know, I know plenty of queer people who who don't fit any of these molds, but I do enjoy that community spirit of you know some stereotypes exist for a reason, and I love when a community can can celebrate their own stereotypes and embrace them, you know, rather than be ashamed of them. Whether it's queer people or you know people of color or people of a religion, you know, it's like yeah, some of us have this thing in common. Yeah, I agree. Uh, like a thousand percent, because obviously, like you said, there are so many, there are so many people in the world. We're not all going to be the same, but there are, I like to call them commonalities because it's like, there are things yes. that a lot of us are just kind of inherently doing or are inherently drawn to that, that create this community that kind of becomes, uh, What's the word I'm looking for? In infallible, in unbreakable. Um, I don't know what you're looking for. <laughs> I know I what you mean. You know what I mean. It's like yeah. you can embrace certain qualities about you, or even qualities that, like, as a young person, you lean into, and then you might grow out of them as you get older. But mm-hmm. there's something that helps you find your your group, your your yes. people. Um, so I think there's something to be said for that. You did yeah. mention earlier that you used to make haunts at uh-huh. your house in Maryland when you were a kid. How did that start? And how you must have the coolest parents. <laughs> I mean, it's funny now. I do think they were really cool when I was a little queenie, um, you know, director. Um, I was constantly battling them, you know, about this or that, you know, but now I look back on it and I'm like, you know, at the end of the day, they they supported me and let me do all this crazy shit. And so the haunt. So, like I said, my my obsession with haunts started probably with the haunted mansion. But the other key thing that might have even kicked it off before then is. Um, I grew up in Annapolis, but my parents had a beach home. So we lived in a place called Ocean City, Maryland Mm. every summer. So um, and in the place where we lived was on the boardwalk. And at the end of the boardwalk, there were two haunted attractions. One was the Morbid Manor, which was a giant style psycho house walkthrough. Very, very scary adult haunted attraction where the the teenagers dressed as ghouls, like terrorized people on the boardwalk. And it was very, it was the late seventies, early eighties. And it was very impressionable. I was obsessed with it. I mean, I was obsessed with it before I was even allowed to go through it, you know? <laughs> um, and I, and sometimes my parents, like they would take us down to go on the rides and all the other kids would want to go on all the rides. And one adult would come and sit with me and I would sit on a bench and I would watch the morbid manner and watch people go in and out of the morbid manner for hours. And they'd say, well, don't you want to go on the rides? Don't you want to do the, and I would say, no, 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 no. And I would just watch everything. And I was so obsessed with that idea of scaring people. And then there was another dark ride at the end of the boardwalk that was called the haunted house. 
and it was a Bill Tracy attraction. He had built it in the 50s. So if you're a dark ride fan like I am, you'll know that Bill Tracy is one of the masters and such great art and so psychedelic and bizarre. And so that because it was there was no sort of um, adult content I was able to go in as a kid. Although looking back on it now, I'm like they flush a lady down the toilet. They um, <laughs> they have a, a woman who's like being cut in half by a um you know a circular saw. I'm like this is really like violent for the 60s and misogynist you know and problematic <laughs> um, you know but it 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 was definitely um completely something i became obsessed with and then bill tracy had another haunt down there but it was a, a kind of a fun house thing it's still there called the pirate's cove and um I, so those those things probably were what really kicked it off and i would come back to annapolis and then i would basically create little haunted houses in our basement and the neighborhood kids would go through them. And then when I, and that would, that grew to where I was like 12, 13 years old. And we started doing them out in the woods and selling tickets and, you know, marketing it. And then it grew into a kind of a bigger thing, like a, a bigger show. Um, so I was, I was sort of running this little mini business, you know, as a, <laughs> as a 13, 14 year old. And, you know, my parents and and other neighborhood parents were involved because there was like safety issues and running electricity out there. And my mother, my mother would, you know, sell the tickets and my father would run the chainsaw. You know, he would take the chain off the chainsaw and <laughs> he'd be the chainsaw person. And, you know, so I look back on it now and I'm like, oh, my God, I, I did have the coolest parents. But at the time, it was just kind of like, why won't you do this? You know, um, <laughs> I, I had a vision. <laughs> at the time, you were like, why can't I run through the woods with knives? I don't understand. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yes, ha haunted houses have been a constant obsession of mine since, you know, as far, far back as I can remember. And, I, I mean, even to this day, now you run Terror Vault in... San Francisco, which is, which is very quickly becoming an iconic haunt in, in San Francisco. It is already, you've gotten so much press. And I, one of the saddest things in my life is that we don't live on the, the West Coast to go to Terra Vault because I was, I last, or, uh, 2019, I kept saying to David, I was like, I wish we could go to Terra Vault. It looks so cool. We love haunted attractions. So I was like, it was killing me that we couldn't go. Do you think that there's anything you learned producing those haunts as a kid that you have actually employed doing Terra Vault now? You know, I think so. I, I, I think that uh, whether I'm like putting on a drag show or... Uh, making a movie or doing the haunted attraction, so much of what interests me is sort of tickling and entertaining and shocking audiences. You know, it all kind of comes from the my, the joy for me comes from the same place. So probably those haunts as a kid might have been the first form of sort of entertainment I really dove into, and I think it probably all the learning about like timing and um, you know surprise um i think has probably really contributed to all of my my stuff um so yeah i think so and i, I was also lucky that my parents put me in a children's theater workshop uh when i was young so i was both i was doing the i was doing plays um and doing the haunted attraction 
Uh, and then um, I actually got into an improv troupe when I was very young. So when I was like 13, 14, I started performing improv with an improv troupe that was a high school aged improv troupe. And I did that all the way till I was 18. So when I look back at those things, the drama clubs, the haunted attractions I was producing and the improv troupe, I'm like, well, that's all me as an adult. You know, it's all <laughs> all the skills I took through my adulthood. So, yeah, I, I think that it did. And I don't know what I learned so much as um, maybe with Terror Vault, what I learned, the biggest lesson is uh, do what you you think you would want to go to, you know. So mm. we go to these haunters conventions and things and we realize – our show, my haunt partner, David, and I go, our show really isn't like anyone else's show. <laughs> but then we're like, made it for us, and it worked. People like it because it's it's theater. It's immersive theater mashed up into a haunted attraction. So it's a, it's a whole story we're telling versus, you know, here's the vampire room, and next you're going to be in, you know, um, a cave with, you know, whatever. This is more like there, there's a story that goes along with the whole experience. And, and I kind of love that idea. It reminds me of, um, there's a theater piece in New York City, and God help me, I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, Sleep at the McKittrick no Hotel. More. Sleep No More, you're absolutely right. <clears throat> that was very um, inspiring to us, yeah. I was going to say, it sounds a, a lot like that. And I love the idea of that. I love the idea of immersive theater and uh it's great because obviously sleep no more um is kind of tied into shakespeare but it also has horror elements i like that yours is a horror story that kind of employs similar tactics i I wouldn't say the same because obviously uh they're your own original we were both very inspired by Sleep No More. We had both seen it independent of one another. And so we kind of took our inspiration of seeing a show like Sleep No More and then said, how would that feel mashed up to an unapologetic, you know, haunted attraction experience? So instead of, you know, the haunt part being light, it's more like the haunt part is still forward. And then we took the sort of storytelling part and that is what makes our haunt maybe have a little bit of a more depth maybe. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we just, we created a new show for this year that was going to be in the spring, but we can't do it. So we're actually bumping Terror Vault um, and Terror Vault will come back in 2022. And so this fall we're doing a new show called The Immortal Reckoning. Um, And so it's, it's a, it's a totally different storyline than Terror Vault. Um, And I'm, I'm really excited for people to experience it. Oh, wow. And it's going to be all live inside the the vault. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it's in the Mint. And so the Terror Vault show <clears throat> is is about the Mint um, secretly being used back in the uh, after the 1906 earthquake, uh, being used as a prison. Um, and it operated as a prison until Alcatraz was opened. And then when Alcatraz was opened, uh, instead of moving the prisoners to the island, as they should have, they just sealed up the vaults and walked away. So Terror Vault is very much a haunted house story. It's very poltergeist, but it's also turn of the century, serial killers, you know, lots of madams, lots of, you know, San Francisco debaucherous villains, um, (laughs) You know, uh, and so you're going through all of these different ghost sequences with the Immortal Reckoning. 
It's about how in the 50s, the Blackwell family, who has the world's largest collection of occult artifacts, has stored them at the San Francisco Mint building. And so you've been invited to come and see this collection like at a museum. And then and then stuff goes wrong and somehow a portal to the next dimension gets opened and you have to go over. And it's very much of a of a supernatural um, adventure. Yeah, um, I love a supernatural adventure. <laughs> yeah. really I, I think it'll be good for this year because it's 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 fantastic. But it the whole the whole thing centers around kind of these two groups of characters, and one of the characters in this whole world is a uh, a queen who owned a, a an eighties new wave goth club, which was actually a secret vampire hangout. So there's this whole sort of Lost Boys, Susie and the Banshees, like drag queens. We have a whole sequence where you go to a peep show and, you know, you're in the booths and it's a vampire stripper. And it's so good. I'm so excited. Um, And we got to build it all last year because with the pandemic, we knew we weren't going to be able to open. So we got a PPP loan and we used the loan to build all the sets. Oh, so the wow. sets are done. They're all just sitting there and they're beautiful. That's amazing. And you know what? Hats off to you for putting that that drag role in there because now no one has to worry about Hecklina anymore. We know she'll be fine in 2021. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. No, she's left. She's in Palm Springs. I know. I, I, she must be sorely missed in, in San Francisco. Really? <laughs> <laughs> uh that that really is amazing. I I love the idea of Terra Vault. Is the is the original story of the vault? Is that based on something that really happened in the mint? No, I made it all up. So oh. <laughs> it's funny though because we present it when you come to the show. We make fake films. We have fake newspapers. We have all this stuff. And a few journalists wrote about this insane, crazy fake history as if it were real. Oh wow. And we- Wow, we must be doing a really good job if they're not even fact-checking this insanity, you know. <laughs> Cuz yeah. you had me going. I was like, I was like, wow, is did this really happen? They used the mint as a prison? And I was like, I was like, oh wow, I must be the most gullible person. No, not really because I'm telling you, we we really fool people because I'll take the dates that are real and talk all about the 1906 earthquake and talk about all the problems the city was having. And I think because there is factual information woven into the story, it becomes very, you know, um, unclear. And then Terra Vault actually is is one of the, the 2020 projects I got to work on. My friend Michael Verratti and I um, took the, the sort of the, the idea of having access to this building in these sets, and we wrote a screenplay about haunters making a haunted attraction that's a horror movie so you know who knows you know so now it's so meta because much like all about evil my other movie (laughs) it's kind of like uh oh god i live in a world and then i have to make a movie about it so now we have this screenplay that's about building a haunted attraction when when everything goes wrong of course right and since you brought it up why don't we take a little moment to talk about all about evil i mean you went to to Penn State University and you you got a degree in filmmaking. Um, and that is actually where Peaches Christ was born, isn't it? Yeah, in my my senior thesis film, Jizz Mopper. Jizz Mopper, so, a love story, right? That's right. Jizz Mopper. <laughs> Jizz Mopper, a love story. 
Yes. <laughs> what was Jizmopper about? Uh, it was actually kind of a, it, it's actually, a, it is a love story and it's kind <laughs> of a sweet, um, pretty G-rated story in many ways, but because of its environment, it's a, it's a guy who's really down on his luck. He's unemployed. He's looking for work in New York City and um, he takes a job as a custodian in one of these peep show places. I think it was called Peep World. Um, and uh, I'm the drag queen manager of this place, or I play the drag queen manager of this place. And one of the dancers is the prom queen from his high school who had given him so much shit for being a freak. And so the story is about them reconnecting and, you know, kind of a level playing field. And then sort of they they fall in love with each other. So it's it's a very kind of heteronormative, you know, like when I look back on it now, I'm like, oh, it's funny. I love cliched things. I love cliched stories. I love taking things that are um, beloved and then warping them. So the all the tropes of this story are any sort of sweet romantic comedy, but then it's, you know, surrounded by dildos and cum jokes and, <laughs> you know, if, you know, him getting, you know, uh, at one point I, I, I float fly, I throw up at a door as peaches and he's mopping the floors and all the mop water goes into his face and his mouth, you know, <laughs> it, you know, it's, 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 you know, my gross out humor, but it's very much, I think if I look at it now, I'm like, Oh yeah, that's totally me. Like there's, nothing that interesting about it <laughs> it's just <laughs> i tend to spice it up with a bunch of you know crazy jokes and you know queer it in a way yeah it sounds like you could literally just pop it right into love actually it fits right in <laughs> exactly. kind of what it is which is the antithesis <laughs> of me in a way <laughs> I, I i have to say i've always loved that about your your film work is is it definitely has a voice. Like you said, you kind of love that kind of shocking, disgusting, but obviously it leans into gore when it's horror, but also into kind of just the abrasive. Uh, my most vivid memory of that is from uh, when we got to see your production. It The title changed when you brought it to New York, but it was originally called uh, The Witches of East Bay. And it, oh, yeah. it, it became The Witches of East Village when you brought it to New York. But one of my favorite moments is actually a scene that you filmed and inserted in the middle with Peggy legs. <laughs> uh, and yeah. it was the infamous cherry scene, but she was spewing them entirely differently. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that scene in the movie, if you think about the witches of Eastwick, I mean, to me at least, probably because I'm warped child, <laughs> but you know, you've got these three iconic divas. I mean, just three iconic, beautiful women. But I have to say, Veronica Cartwright kind of steals the show as the religious, you know, freak, you know, the 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 religious, you know, nutcase to me. Veronica Cartwright is so great in that role, in that scene where she's vomiting the cherries. I mean, unforgettable. And and how do you fucking top that if you're doing a drag parody and I and I knew we would not be allowed to make a huge mess on these stages right like yeah. I think in New York we were at the Gramercy Theater which is like a you know a rock venue really and at the Castro you're performing over this multi-million dollar organ literally you know they put the stage so you can't have liquids on stage mm. uh and, and a very expensive curtain behind us so I was like well we'll have to film something 
And if I'm going to top the cherry vomiting, she's going to have to spew it from both ends, I think. <laughs> you know, so that's what we did. <laughs> it is one of my it is one of my like most treasured memories of getting to see a Peaches Christ production. And I've seen a couple. Any that came to New York, I went to see them because I wouldn't miss one and neither should any of our listeners. But um it And that I have to say like since uh we're talking about that scene uh, that performance and that if your listeners are interested that that movie's online, you can look it up. It's a little short film called Cherry Bomb. And it's, I think, on my Vimeo page. Um, but uh, the performer, Peggy Legs, uh, got to come with us to New York, uh, which was so great. Myself, Chad Michaels, Coco Peru and Peggy Legs went to New York. And uh, I'm so glad that she was able to make it. She's su- because New York, of course, fell in love with her, and she's such a such a great performer, such a great scene stealer. And sadly, uh, in 2020, we lost Peggy. So you know, it's 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 one of those wonderful memories. And you know, is is disgusting and and rotten as that film is. You know, Peggy will live on. You know, in that movie. <laughs> and I think she would be proud of that legacy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. I I. I remember meeting her after the show and she was just the sweetest fucking person. So yeah. like so kind and wonderful. And she really was a scene stealer in in yeah. that in that production. Um, and she ever in every production. That's the thing. I mean, some people would say, why, why do you keep putting Peggy in shows? She's driving you nuts. And she would. She would drive me nuts <laughs> because she could go out there and it didn't matter what I put on the page. You know, all of a sudden she's doing God knows what physical comedy or whatever. And it used to drive me crazy. I mean, we used to get in fights with it. But the audience loved it. She was mm. just magic on stage some people are just like that her afterwards because she was so so nice i know know, how do you you yell at peggy (laughs) (laughs) she was she was just the nicest fucking person and uh it's funny to hear you say that because i have only in my drag career so far produced one stage production and um i had the same fight with with my co-star where i was like i was like i appreciate the physical comedy you're doing, but I was like, it's starting to veer from the story. I was like, it's starting to like not tell the story anymore. And I had someone come and sit in, uh, another drag queen come and sit in uh, on a rehearsal one day to help like punch scenes up because I I was in it. So I couldn't always see what was going on effectively. And this person kept being like, oh, you after you do this physical funny thing, do this and then do this and then do this. And I was like, I was like, girl, I can't make everything a sight gag. I was like, at some point the text has to speak for itself. Um, And it's hard to like get people to do that. But then at the end of the day, you want the performer to be able to do that. You want the performer to give the, to breathe this life into something. And I I think Peggy certainly did that. She definitely did. And yeah. And I mean, she, she would listen. I mean, that's the other thing. Like I make it sound like she wouldn't listen, but, uh, you know, sometimes she would find something that was working on stage and kind of go rogue. I mean, when someone reminded me of, we did a showgirls show once where I don't think she ever bothered to memorize the script. I mean, she came out and sat down at the table and we're doing this two person scene. And at one point, I don't remember this, but someone says, do you remember at one point you said to her in front of the whole audience, are you going to do any of the script? 
You know, like I, like I stopped, you know, performing and like just kind of confronted her. And the audience, of course, in San Francisco went nuts. They loved that, you know. I know. For everyone else, it's very entertaining. When you're doing the scene on stage, it's horrific. <laughs> exactly. Oh, yeah. If, the, if Peaches is being tortured by other actors on stage, that, that there's no better entertainment for the audience. You know, San Francisco goes wild for that. I think any crowd does. I, I'm sure in San Francisco, particularly because they love kind of weird offbeat stuff. But any crowd loves those like weird little moments that happen. I remember when we went to see, it was actually uh, Witches of East Village. Uh, when we went to see it, there was a moment where you were on stage with Coco and, and Chad and you had a line. I don't remember. I God help me what the line was, but right. um, you were supposed to say so-and-so, whoever Coco's character was. And you were like, so-and-so come here. And you were, and you were like, Coco, come here. And, and she was like, you mean so-and-so. And you literally, I saw like, like the veil lift for a second and you were like, oh my God. Like you realized you had said the wrong name. And it's like, again, one of those just like kind of golden moments that gets peppered into a live production. Um, But you did go to Penn State for for filmmaking and obviously later went on to make what I think is an amazing uh, horror comedy all about evil. You know what I call it? I always call it a gore comedy because people are like, well, what does that mean? I'm like, well, it's horror light, you know, <laughs> um, wouldn't describe it as as scary, but there is gore and it is it is gross. And it was really inspired by uh, my love of old, you know, schlocky, spooky movies, you know, like Vincent Price and um, especially Herschel Gordon Lewis, you know, those old gore movies from the 60s and 70s where they weren't scary, but they were designed to make you go, ew, you know. <laughs> So yeah, so it, it, I call it a gore comedy. So for for anyone listening who has not uh, seen All About Evil, first of all, you're missing out. Second, uh, it is a, a really amazing movie that you wrote, directed, and even starred in um, and produced yourself, right? Uh, well, I had a team of producers, thank God. My, my dear friend, Darren uh, Stein, who wrote and directed a film called Jawbreaker, um, most most famously, um, and he's he's written and directed a bunch of movies. He uh, really believed in my my silly shorts, and he was like, you know, I want to produce your first feature. And and years later, I was like, okay, I'm going to take you up on that. Here's the script, and he did, and he took it around, and he helped get it made, and he. Put, assembled a team of producers and helped find the money for it. So I'm listed as a producer and I certainly did some of the producing work on it, but you know, Darren Stein really was the producer who came in and, and made it happen. How crazy. And thank God that he did. And we love Darren, by the way, a jawbreaker. I mean, if you don't love jawbreaker, you I, I don't know why you're even <laughs> listening to this podcast, but, um, the the movie is really amazing. David and I had the opportunity to see it a couple times. Uh, and it is about uh, a woman named Deborah, who is played by Natasha Leone of uh, Leone of um, But I'm a Cheerleader and Orange is the New Black fame and now uh, Russian Doll on Netflix. Natasha Leone plays this, this woman, Deb, who uh, 
kind of comes into her family's business, which is uh, at this old kind of decrepit movie theater. And to to save them the embarrassment of filing bankruptcy, she takes over running the, the theater and along the way becomes a filmmaker herself, creating these like <laughs> gore films where she's actually killing people and she becomes a serial killer. Um, and it's it's an amazing movie. It's really wonderful. Are there plans to like, do you do you still sell it? Do you still sell copies? So, so here's the thing. It's been out of print now for long enough that people are like demanding it because it it actually sold out of its first major DVD run, and then now people are are buying like the German Blu-ray or the Japanese <laughs> Blu-ray or whatever you know on eBay. And so, um, l- luckily, there's been a, a de- like a deal in the works now with a streaming service where um, it's going to be available for streaming on that service uh, later this year, but only after we do a sort of all about evil reunion uh, and do a, an online thing, and it'll be available for streaming at the newly we're working on revamping peacheschrist.com. So. It's it's finally going to be fully available for for the modern era, um, and I'm excited for that because I think there's all these new people who've heard about it, and of course Natasha, um, you know, is so much more famous. I mean, she was very famous when we made the movie for sure, and I was a huge fan, and she was literally my number one choice, and I didn't think we would get Natasha. In fact, we were working with another actress before Natasha, um, but that actress. Uh, who I love also and am, am a big fan of, um, ha- had to fall away because they got offered a, a pretty high-paying gig. Um, and so it was this this fluke where um, not my casting director, it was the cinematographer, Tom Richmond, who's a brilliant cinematographer, um, and he had, shot, he had shot Chopping Mall. Really? And he had shot... Yeah. And he had shot House of a Thousand Corpses. And so these were these were the movies that I was interested in him, you know, and he had just come from a new movie called Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist. And mm. so he was he was a big cinematographer. And he said, well, who would be your number one ch- choice to play Deborah? Because, um, you know, she changed she changes her, the pronunciation <laughs> of her name to Deborah, to Deborah. instead of Deborah. <laughs> um, and I said, honestly, when I wrote this movie, um, I was picturing my favorite horror actresses who were, you know, unique looking, different looking, real looking. So I was picturing Sissy Spacek, you know, and, and Carrie or, you know, Shelley Duvall in The Shining. Like, you know, and because what's happening in Hollywood right now is you get like sent by these management companies um, a, a pile of, of, of headshots and they're all these sort of beautiful boring looking people <laughs> that all look the same. And in many ways, I think they have to kind of, in order to be really great, they actually have to rise above their good looks, you know, to prove that they're talented, right? And um, I, the actresses I was interested in, like, you know, Judy Greer and Natasha Leone, they often get cast as sort of the sidekick or the best friend. And I find those women to be beautiful and real. And those are the, you know, and so I said to Tom, my first choice has always been Natasha Leone, you know, kind of being like, whatever's, you know, <laughs> and Tom pulls out his phone in my little office. Well, Tom had shot the slums of Beverly Hills, like one of the, <laughs> you know, favorite movies. They were friends. 
he gets her on the phone. He says, Natasha, I'm here working with a new young director. He's doing a feature. I'm going to shoot it. He wants you to play the lead. What do you think? She says, put me on the phone with him. Tom hands me the phone. I mean, this is really how it happened. <laughs> I'm like, oh. and it's like that, you know, un, unmistakable voice. Like, yeah. you know, hey, this is Natasha, you know, and I'm like, oh, my God, it's Natasha Leone. <laughs> she says, what's your movie about? And I said, well, you know, I was really inspired by this woman, this filmmaker, and she was the only exploitation filmmaker who was a female, you know, back in the grindhouse days, you know, she was, and Natasha interrupts me and she goes, oh, Doris Wishman. And I'm like, who the fuck knows about Doris Wishman? <laughs> like, I, I had made, written all about evil inspired by this obscure filmmaker, you know, the only really big movie nerds, movie, you know, Natasha goes, oh yeah, I've met Doris. I'm like, what? <laughs> and Natasha says, send me the script. So Natasha gets the script. She reads the script. She totally got it. And I think we she we put her on a plane and she was out in San Francisco maybe a week later. And, you know, and then she and I are in a hotel room working on the character. And, you know, and I will and Natasha and I bonded. Um, and, you know, I've been actually texting with her lately. She's very busy right now because they're shooting the, the Russian doll season two. Um, and, uh, but Natasha came and she played that part and, you know, I still, you know, I've seen that movie more than anyone else, but watching Natasha in that movie, play that part and go and watch her do what we talked about, you know, uh, is one of the things I'll always not only be proud of, but like super enjoy. You probably know what it's like to create work that you never want to look at again, right? So yeah. I have plenty of that. <laughs> <laughs> plenty of it. But luckily, All About Evil, which was a big, you know, big risk uh, for me, is something I really still, you know, enjoy watching. It's definitely something to be proud of. I mean, David and I, like in, several times over the last year, I've looked at him and been like, I wish there was a way we could get Peaches to come on the podcast and like do like a watch along of All About Evil. And I was like, but we'd have to like show it to people because it wasn't it wasn't like widely released. It wasn't in theaters. Well, how about this? I'll come back on once we put it online and it's streaming, which we are literally working on. It's be being <laughs> built right now. Um, once that happens, we'll co I'll come back on and we'll do a watch along. That would be that is like my dream because I love well, that movie so much. I mean, it's it's great for me because it means people more people have to go to my website and buy a little ticket. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and our our listeners love this this style of movie. If you're listening, I I promise you this is right up your alley. It is such like camp uh, gore comedy it, it is yeah well and we didn't even mention that like uh you know there, there's a kid in the movie played by thomas decker who's so mm -hmm. great and he's obsessed with horror movies and so he becomes a big fan of hers but his mom is very concerned about his you know interest in horror and you know his mother is actually played by cassandra peterson who's elvira you know <laughs> so this, this that, that was a big coup uh, uh, to get Elvira to do the movie out of drag. And then, of course, we have Mink Stoll in the movie, the John Waters superstar. So, you know, if it, I, I have a feeling your listeners will really get it. Oh, absolutely. Is, is that the project that brought you together with Elvira? 
No, it's funny. I was working with Elvira before that through and Mink th- through Midnight Mass. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Midnight Mass, um, which I'm sure is on your list of questions. Oh, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> yeah, my cult. I know we're like meandering. I'm very wordy. I'm blabby. So uh, to loop it back to kind of before All About Evil uh, and after Jizz Mopper, I had moved to San Francisco and created this show called Midnight Mass, which was um, in a movie theater. And it was at midnight. And I would screen my favorite cult movies and then create these sort of tribute shows that could take the form of, um, you know, a parody, a sketch comedy piece or a contest or you know, all sorts of things. And and after a few years of um, doing it, I decided to invite Mink Stoll to come and be like the guest of honor. And, you know, I was obsessed with John Waters and obsessed with Divine and Edith Massey and Mink Stoll. You know, I think <laughs> of Mink and Divine and Edie as being the holy triumvirate of those, those movies. And uh, Edie and Divine are obviously no longer with us. So I, on a lark, got man- management contact information from Mink sent Mink's manager a letter. It was very, very gushy. It was very over the top. And uh, Mink responded and then did it. And she came to San Francisco and we did this big show called Idol Worship, uh, Mink Stole. And then I and then I um, took that show as a model and Mink and I became friends and we started to work together and and started to do more Idol Worship shows where I would bring people to to town to celebrate them in this sort of peaches christ way and so elvira cassandra was one of the people that we did tara satana um from bastard pussycat kill kill uh gosh linda blair bruce campbell herschel gordon lewis um pam greer you know uh it just i am so lucky because i've gotten to as a fan as a dorky fan of all this stuff you know I've gotten to um, create this sort of space where I selfishly get to meet people I'm obsessed with. (laughs) (laughs) It is so. And then, then, you know, show them to everyone and, you know, then then take my obsession and put it on stage. And really all I'm doing is channeling everyone's obsession, you know. So that, that I think that's why it works is Peaches isn't up there as some sort of sometimes when I watch people interview celebrities and the person interviewing the celebrity is also a personality. Um, it really bothers me when you can tell that they are trying to entertain instead of letting the celebrity. Anyway, so when I'm on stage with someone I admire, I will make jokes, but they're always, you know, at my expense. And uh, the person I'm, you know, celebrating is always to be worshipped. And I think one thing that's, you know, come from that is people that I work with, not all of them, but most of them um, understand the purity from where I'm coming. Like, like I'm not really stupidly, I, I should be, but I'm not driven by the box office. I'm not driven by, um, you know, um, my own gain in the situation. I really truly am give, driven by I'm obsessed with you. I think you're amazing. I think what you've done is amazing. Let me put you on stage in this religious weird environment and and channel the love of, you know, John Waters once called my shows. What did he say? Oh, he was like, it's an evening of gay worship. And I was like, well, I don't know if it's gay. And then and he actually says this in the doc, one of the documentaries about all about evil. He goes, no, your audience is hetero flexible. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I don't 
exactly know what heteroflexible means, but I think what it means is it's like my audience is the Rocky Horror audience. It's queer. It's straight. It's everything. It doesn't matter. Everyone's under the umbrella of queer, really. Right. And it's again, it comes back to that kind of like weird tied together string where it's like, yeah, we're all walking in a different lane, but we're all kind of holding hands while we do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, um, it's all for people who didn't really fit into the normal places. You know, that's why we would gather at midnight or that's why we like cult things. And we like the things that, you know, if we all loved, um, I don't know, Titanic, it wouldn't really be that interesting. You yeah. Know? Everyone it, liked Titanic, you know. Exactly. I, it, it's whatever. fun that it's this weird thing. That's what brings yeah. everybody together. And yeah. I mean, you had you had idol worship with so many people, like you said, like Elvira and and Bruce Campbell and all these amazing people. One of my favorite stories you've ever told me was when you had Cloris Leachman. Oh yeah, Cloris was maybe the most unhinged of any people <laughs> I've been on stage with where, I mean, I th you know, there's only one thing kind of scarier than Clor the Chloris type. Cause with Chloris, I don't think in that entire interview, she ever answered a single question I asked her. Like, I don't think, I don't think she ever, I don't think she ever answered a question. I think what I realized when we got on stage together was like, and, and you know what? I don't know if I told you this, but her own fucking manager had warned me about her. Like her own manager said, she's crazy. And I was like, oh, I know. I just love her. And he was like, no, no, she's crazy. <laughs> like real. He got really, I'll never forget it. Like he was really serious. And I was like, okay. And he said, look, I, I'm, I'm positive. She's going to try to remove your wig. I'm positive. And I said, I said, why, why would she do that? Like, and I was like, and I don't know how the audience will respond to that. He's like, she thinks it's funny. She, and then he told me that they had been in New York together like a couple weeks earlier and she tried to remove the, the turban off a Sikh who was driving their cab and, and it almost caused a horrible accident in the streets of New York. He pulls over, I mean, he doesn't know it's Cloris Leachman. He throws this old lady out onto the street and I'm like listening to this story. I went to my wig person later and I had a huge tower of wig, you know? <laughs> I said, you gotta take all the pins out because we had pinned it all into my head, you know, so that it wouldn't work. He's like, I can't take the pins out. That thing will never stay on you. I was like, I will balance it. But look, if she goes to take this thing off my head and it doesn't just go off because it's stuck there, the audience is going to freak out. Yeah. So when you watch, there's a clip of it online, I believe. When you watch her, she actually asks permission on stage, amongst many other things that she did that were insane. Um, <laughs> she asks permission. No, you know what she says? What would happen? And I think she's sitting in my lap at this point. Like, <laughs> it was it was totally nuts. Okay, she like, looks at me and says something like, what would happen if I took that wig off your head right now? And I say, well, there's only one way to find out. And the audience is really uncomfortable and she kind of walks behind me and she's teeny tiny. So even though I'm sitting in the chair, she's now we're kind of eye level and she's standing up and she lifts the wig up and the audience is screaming and going crazy. And I just like kind of let her. Um, but yeah, it was one of the strangest moments. But I'll say the only thing worse than a Cloris Leachman is someone who gets on stage and gives you nothing. 
you know, so at least Flores, I was terrified, but there was energy (laughs) and it was exciting. And, you know, it was like, it was a show and she was the one running the show, not me, you know, so I, I'm not sure that I loved it. Um, but I, I think we put on a good show. The only thing worse is I've worked with a few people where you get on stage and they they just give you nothing. And then where do you go? You know? Yeah. Then you're trying to find the balance. You're trying to keep the audience like amplified and that's supposed to be their whole job. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's, well, it's that thing where you're trying to, you're, you, you're really work. Your job is to showcase this person in their best possible light. So if they give you nothing, it's so obvious to the audience that you are both, you know, at a sort of a standstill, you know, right. Or if someone's humorless, I mean, that's the other thing. And again, I've only encountered this mm, a handful of times. I mean, like not maybe a couple times that I can remember where I'm like, Oh yeah, that was, and it's no one, it's never been with stars that I've been madly in love with, you know, mm. maybe, and maybe there's something to that in, in that, it was someone you gave to to people thinking, oh, well, this isn't necessarily my person, but maybe it's for them. Because I, I think that's obviously where it all comes from. But right. I feel like, like, like an audience can sense that when it's like when your heart's not all the way in it. Yeah, 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 maybe. I mean, the one person, this is such a weird story. I, was, I don't even know if I should tell it because he, he's still around. But I'll say this. There was a director of a horror movie who I had never met. I liked the horror movie. I thought it was a strange horror movie. Um, I'll only tell you, and maybe your listeners can figure it out, but it's a it's a seasonal horror film. So it's, it's a holiday horror film. And John Waters is obsessed with this movie. And John had met the director. So John calls me and says, you should do a show with so-and-so. <laughs> Did you like how, how cagey I'm being? Yeah. And I thought, I'm like, Oh, really? Do you think, you know, so I do a special midnight mass in December for this movie. That's a a Christmas, a scary movie. And the director comes and I'm thinking the director understands that this movie's camp to us and that it's, you know, we're there to have fun. And this director starts going down a road of talking about his real traumas with being you know, I think molested and beaten and all this stuff with Christmas and like he, and you can see that in the movie, there's a real serious darkness to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but it's it, anyway, it was, <laughs> and John was in the audience. John was sitting in the back. The audience didn't know that John Waters was there. He was, you know, sitting in the back and I'm sitting up on stage like, what the fuck is happening? But everyone who was there that night was like, it was one of the weirdest, most uncomfortable, you know, because it's a, you know, it's a midnight show. It's supposed to be fun. And he's like, well, I was, you know, molested uh, when I was a child and Christmas always has been really horrible, you know, and we're like, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm trying and this to. Is the interview. Yeah. This is an interview that's done after I did an opening number where the Virgin Mary gave birth to a drag queen on stage, you know, <laughs> so it's, it's like <laughs> this is the the spirit of the evening is not this not childhood trauma you know yeah I'm trying to imagine and I think I know the answer I'm trying to imagine John Waters's reaction to this and I it's I know it's either the first and only time anyone has ever seen John Waters sit in the back of a movie theater with his hands over his face like this or 
he loved every minute of it. <laughs> I, I, you know, it's funny. I think he probably liked it. I think he probably enjoyed the awkwardness of it. I'm I, sure he did. I, and you know, he and this guy who I realize this. So John is the real deal. So like, we're all like, oh, we're weirdos. We're weirdos. You know, we're, we're weirdos. We are, we're different, we're other, you know, but I realized like, oh no, John really likes strange people, you know, like, <laughs> and we go to his Christmas party every year, you know, we go to his house, you know, um, and you know, I'm luckily lucky enough to be someone who's, you know, in his sort of inner circle. And I'll say that he has earnest and real relationships with, with people that, you know, other people would not want to hang out with, you know, so I'll put it that way. So I think he does enjoy people who challenge people, you know, and he probably knew that was going to happen to me. <laughs> <laughs> he set you up. He just put, he put you on the Good. stove and lit the fire. <laughs> After that interview, I don't see how he couldn't have known. <laughs> <laughs> that's so, that's so insane to me. Do you have a favorite memory from Midnight Mass? Is there one that you're like, this is oh. the moment? So it's interesting. So Midnight Mass ran for all those years at the bridge. And then we moved from the bridge because we had outgrown it to the Castro Theater. But the Castro Theater, it was making the leap between a 400-seat theater to a 1,400-seat theater. <laughs> so it was a big leap. And so when we went to the Castro, we knew that it did not make sense anymore to do shows at midnight. And... Um, and the shows that were really working the best were the parody shows. Um, so I, I sort of have this divide in my mind of like Midnight Mass sort of morphed into this other thing, the thing I've been doing for the last 10 years, which are these parody shows. Um, so I'll keep those out and just focus on Midnight Mass. And I'll say that my best memory was our 10-year um, anniversary weekend and John – uh, Mink and Tarasatana were all there. And it was sort of this culmination of like these people that were so important to me that I had created this character, Peaches Christ, and this show um, kind of because of them, that they were in the audience watching us do a kind of a best of show, which Peggy Legs was actually one of the scene stealers in because, you know, years earlier we had done a um, – a screening of Annie, the actual musical Annie. <laughs> and we did a pre-show and I did, you know, wrote this whole musical, um, you know, about a little orphan who didn't get adopted because she was a drag queen. Um, and so it was this, this, you know, ridiculous. And then eventually Leather Daddy Warbucks comes and it's this whole, <laughs> you know, total like queering of Annie. Um, but what Peggy did in that show, which she redid as part of this best of, was when we did Hard Knock Life, she cartwheeled across the stage as she was supposed to. Peggy naturally was a ginger. Now, when you met her, she might have already kind of gone white. But mm. back when we did um, Annie, she was a ginger um, naturally. But she wore a red wig. Anyway, before the show, she took off her tights and her panties so that when she cartwheeled across the stage as Annie, the drag queen, her big, she had a very large member with all the ginger pubes 
<laughs> flopping around the whole way across. And John Waters loved that so much. He thought that was so fucked up. Because, of course, when she started cartwheeling across the stage and her dick is flopping around, <laughs> you know, he thought it was amazing. So th- that that whole memory of um, of them being in the audience as we were doing this best of thing was was probably my favorite memory. That is like. I I can't even imagine Becky doing that. Oh yeah, it, it really like stops my heart. I'm like, oh my god, I I wish to God I could have been there to see this. Um, this kind of brings us to one of the topics we really wanted to talk about. It's kind of a, uh, um, I'm pulling a little bit of everything of what we've talked about here. Uh, obviously. When you when we think of you, we think of someone who loves cult movies, who loves uh, offbeat, off-center, kind of crazy, kooky, campy, odd things. And now that we've added Annie to the mix, we can even say musicals. Um, you are a lifelong fan of Rocky Horror. And yes. Midnight Mass obviously brought that. And and Idol Worship, no, uh, too as well, right? Uh yeah, well, so my my relation, so Rocky Horror and the Cockettes really were the inspiration for creating Midnight Mass. And so for a long, long time, I wouldn't do anything Rocky Horror because it was like the Holy Grail. You know, I mean, if, <laughs> if there was no, if there was no, in a, in a sense, basically what Midnight Mass was, was my excuse to try to give other movies the Rocky Horror treatment. In many ways, that was the inspiration for Midnight Mass was I love Rocky Horror so much and I love what fans have done with Rocky Horror so much that we should do it with Female Trouble or we should do it with, you know, Evil Dead 2 or whatever, these other movies that I love. And that's what Midnight Mass really was, you know, Showgirls. We turned I really think we we were successful at turning Showgirls into a, a, a bona fide midnight movie. When we programmed Showgirls the first year, no one understood why we were screening it. They couldn't understand it. It was only two years after the movie had come out, you know, and so Rocky Horror, people would say, why haven't you done Rocky Horror? Why haven't you done Rocky Horror? And it was like, because, you know, it is the god of all midnight movies. <laughs> I will not touch it. And then, of course, you know, I switched gears years later and and decided it's finally time to start celebrating Rocky Horror. And we did it in an idol worship way. Yeah different actors yeah right and you you famously brought on barry bostwick you brought on patricia uh quinn and little nell was there as well right yes so barry and patricia i'd worked with um but alone um doing different shows and um and then recently actually the last show i did at the castro before the pandemic we did a 45th anniversary of Rocky Horror, um, and Little Nell came. So I've never done a show with just Little Nell, but I did a show with Barry, Little Nell, and Patricia. So yeah, and 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 then she and I, Little Nell and I and Patricia did um, an online version of Idol Worship uh, last year during the pandemic. How crazy. I, I think she is such a fascinating woman. <laughs> yeah. And Absolutely. really makes that movie in so many ways. Uh, but 
Rocky Horror is obviously a, a draw for everyone. Like you said earlier, it it brings in people who are heterosexual, people who are queer, people from every umbrella love this movie and have loved it for so long. Do you remember how old you were when you first saw it? Mm, no, not really. I remember uh, I was probably like 14 or 15 when I went to the Marley Station Mall and saw it in a movie theater, you know, and that was a big deal because it meant staying out to like 2.30 in the morning or something, you know, because um, they showed it at midnight. And, um, and I think that before that, I may have seen it on VHS, although I kind of feel like maybe I didn't. I think I think maybe it was impossible to get on VHS until, you know, after I'd seen it in the movie theater. So it was around that time. I was probably like 13 or 14. And um, yeah, I came, I, my mother remembers me coming home from the cinema and in the middle of the night, like waking them up, you know, they were in bed and my mom, I don't remember this. And my mom says, I said to her, I can't believe you let me go see that movie. I can't believe <laughs> you let me go see that movie. And she was like, uh-huh. And they knew what it was sort of, you know, and I was like, I will, I will forever be changed or something like that. And like kind of walked out of the room, like <laughs> real dramatically, you know, like, like I, you know, and in, in, in many ways, I guess it's true. You know, it really opened my eyes to uh, a different world. Yeah. And especially the audience part of it, you know, the fact that there was a community, uh, you know, around this weirdo movie really showed me like, oh, my God, these are my people. And at the time, you were obviously into horror and sci-fi, but do you think this was like almost a new taboo for you in that it was so overtly queer? Do you think that that was why you would have said something like that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. I think the whole message of don't dream it, be it. And I think that um, with the drag, with the horror stuff, um, I had always been, I mean, it's funny. I look back on old photos. My brother's been scanning these old photos from our childhood. And like, I was in these shows where like, in uh, one show I play a genie and, and I'm like, you know, probably in like sixth or seventh grade. And I am in so much makeup. Like <laughs> I had obviously done my face. It looked, I look like a woman. I'm like a total girl, but it was like playing the genie meant I could put on, I think I'm wearing lashes. You know what I mean? Like what? <laughs> Yeah, what little boy? So I think like, you know, I think especially like now with with conversations about, you know, being non-binary and trans identities. And I think it, in Coco and I have talked about this and Bunny and I have talked about this. It's interesting as a, as a drag performer of a certain age to realize that your your gender identity is wrapped up in your uh, passion or interest in doing drag. Right. Like you know, I was drawn to the idea of Tim Curry wearing heels, no doubt, 100%, you know, and as a queer boy, you know, it is related to my gender identity in many ways, because I wasn't all boy, I didn't feel like I was all boy at all. So yeah, him proudly singing a song like Sweet Transvestite was was really life-changing, as well as, 
you know, divine, you know, the discovery of divine. And because divine was from Maryland and divine was, especially when Hairspray came out, which coincidentally was right around the time I discovered Rocky Horror. I mean, almost exactly um, Hairspray came out and Maryland decided to finally embrace John Waters and laud divine. She was celebrated. So it really, I think all of that really, um, was affirming for me in a, in a very important way. Do you think that's why Rocky Horror is still relevant to audiences today? Because that message is still kind of blaring through for for young queer people? I think it's a couple things. I think one, uh, it is just wildly entertaining. It's just, it's <laughs> funny. The perform- Tim Curry is just delicious. The performances are wonderful. The music is infectious. We love the music. It's so good. It's simple, but it's so good and so much fun. And, you know, there's an opulence to the production design. It's got all those things. But at the end of it all, much like The Wizard of Oz, you know, it, it's got a message that's going to just carry over forever. Um, you know, with The Wizard of Oz, obviously it's about, you know, there's no place like home. Like that's that's a very strong theme, you know, for the, for a big journey. Um, for For Rocky Horror, don't dream it, be it. You know, that'll never be out of vogue with people. That will always speak to someone who's struggling with whether or not to pursue their dreams or to be something or to, you know, um, you know, so it doesn't necessarily even have to be about drag. You know, the message will still hopefully be inspiring. So, yeah, I think it'll I think it'll live on. I hope it lives on. I think it will. I mean, it, it has so far, of course, you know, in, in the modern day uh, cancel culture with within <laughs> uh, the, 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 the world that we live in now. And I actually think you know, getting them getting to Rocky Horror is really interesting because, you know, I've been, you know, confronted with should Rocky Horror be canceled? You know, and it's like, um, look, I don't think anything should be canceled, quite frankly. I think that, you know, we can talk about why things are problematic. We can talk about why things are, you know, dated or or, or no longer um, comfortable. But by canceling something like, you know, Rocky Horror, um, I actually think it's actually it's just going to end up bringing more attention to you know my my attitude is whenever you tell people don't look at that they're going to look at it mm-hmm. so <laughs> i I, you know. I i actually agree with you 100% i'm not i agree with some of the sentiments of of what is quote unquote cancel culture but I agree with you that I think that it doesn't, I don't think it serves the purpose it intends to serve. I think that the intention is to create more safety for people, but I actually think that what people would benefit from in many, not all, but many, if not most cases, is a healthy discussion about what it is they're seeing and Especially in the case of Rocky Har, because this was something I was even going to bring up to ask you what your thoughts on this were. You know, we've seen people who are upset by um, what has been called transphobia or or uh, misrepresentation of the trans experience in in this movie, which I think is a, a in my opinion, I think it's a misunderstanding 
about what's happening in the movie. But I appreciate that we can have that conversation because there should be other trans representation in media. There should be good trans representation. There should be more conversation around it. But in Rocky Horror, I don't consider Frank trans. Well, it's interesting. That's actually not the number one reason people want to cancel it. They actually... What's at issue right now is are the scenes where Frank impersonates uh, Brad or Janet oh. in order to sleep with them. Hmm. And it's being described as, you know, rape culture, which I get that. I mm-hmm. totally get it. And, and I think that conversation is valid. Um, but I also think we have to look at the way sex was looked at, um, the way consent was looked at, the way, you know, sexuality was, you know, it's better to have a bigger conversation. Um, so it, it, it's an interesting thing. But the the more the reason I bring it up is because I was recently kind of confronted with that. And mm. that was the thing that they were going in on. And, you know, I said, look, then 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 you're of the mindset that, you know, Gone with the Wind should be canceled or, you know, and I said, and honestly, I don't know that we're going to be left with very much, you know, so rather than just throw out all of this work, I think it's just more productive to talk about, you know, what makes this thing good, what's still great about it and what was problematic and why it was problematic. You know, I think it's just a much better way to move forward. I'm actually more bothered by I'm more conflicted personally like I I actually don't have a problem because most of the cult movies that I like most horror movies that I like are problematic like let's just (laughs) like almost everything I like is problematic (laughs) so you know it's like I'm just going to say it right now I would rather have a conversation about what's good about those movies and what's bad about those movies than just throw them all out because for all of your you know, arguments that that slasher movies are misogynistic valid. I could also argue that they're empowering to women. Um, so, you know, I think I think it's better to have a conversation where I'm having uh, a struggle right now is how do I continue to enjoy work that was created by someone I find vile? Right. So mm. how do I watch a Woody Allen movie and I don't know that I can, especially if he's in it, you know, like um, I feel like what Woody Allen is. Did, I think he did molest his daughter. I think he, you know, is a slime bag. I mean, he married his wife's adopted daughter like and hello enough, you know. <laughs> um, so I'm more like and I love the music of Michael Jackson. I love it. I was so entertained by Michael Jackson. You know, I think. So I'm more conflicted about that stuff. But the idea of canceling books or canceling movies or works of art, um, I think isn't I think it's bad. I think it's I think we're going down a, a dangerous road, you know. I agree. But me personally, I'm struggling with oh God, I'm pretty sure Michael Jackson did some horrible things. But <laughs> or, he beat or, it comes on the radio and I'm like, you know, I'm into it, you know. Exactly. Or uh, for me, it, a lot of times it's Bill Cosby because it's like, I oh, thought he was yeah. hysterical. I mean, a truly gifted comedian. But you can't, you can't say like, well, <laughs> these 40 women or, or however many women it was okay. that he assaulted. He's He's, he was a monster. He, so, he was a monster who also created 
completely groundbreaking television that changed the lives of many people and the perception of black people. You know, he did something both extraordinary while also being horrifying and awful. So it is, it's so complicated, this whole thing. Yeah. Um, but I think the reason Bill Cosby also is, is a little different than something like Rocky Horror or in same thing with Woody Allen or Michael Jackson is because the person themselves did this damage. It's really hard then like with the Cosby show, you don't, you won't be able to see him as, you know, Dr. Huxtable anymore. You will see him as a rapist, right? Like, so it's this thing of like, whereas with, with something like Rocky horror or I don't know, showgirls, you know, (laughs) I think it's, you know, okay, let's, let's talk about like, how these things are really fucked up and awful. And and is there a way that we can still enjoy them, you know? Right. And I think for me, at least with Rocky Horror, when it comes to things like that, this is a very specific example, but when it comes to the deceitful actions of, of Frankenfurter, I'm kind of like, well, but Frank is kind of the villain of the movie. You know what I mean? So I don't necessarily think that those actions are being portrayed in a positive light because his message is don't dream it, be it. But for Frank, that was excessive. So, yeah. Well, there... and do you know that also Richard O'Brien has said some really problematic things? Oh, yes. <laughs> I'm not really surprised by that. Like, there's a, yeah, this whole other can of worms with the Rocky War station. It's like, oh, God. And then Richard opens his fucking mouth and says, Shit. And, you know, it just it's layers upon layers, you know? I, yeah. And we're all sitting here like, oh, please stop. <laughs> like, please just stop. let me yeah. have this thing before. Just like somebody right. stick him in his house and just be like, hush, hush, hush. <laughs> and and if, but I would like to someday, you know, I hope that we get to have that conversation with both Richard and Barry Humphreys. Barry Humphreys mm. has also said some horrible things, and Barry Humphreys is best known as portraying Dame Edna, the maybe one of the most successful. I mean, outside of R- RuPaul, well, but before RuPaul, Dame Edna was the queen who had a you know a TV show and was interviewing celebrities and was so brilliant and so great. Um, but both Barry and Richard, who happen to be close friends, have said some really problematic things related to trans folks. Um, and what I think would be interesting is to have a deeper conversation with them. And I don't think that that's happened yet. So we take these sound bites, we take a quote from an interview, put it online and scream, cancel, cancel, cancel. But I actually wonder, like, did the person that actually wrote and put themselves on the line, you know, don't dream it, be it, and created the Rocky Horror Picture Show, and then lived life as a person male presenting, you know, wearing skirts and dresses on television, and I'm talking about Richard, Mm -hmm. and really presented a non-binary identity before anybody else was, you know, like, in this way that was like, I'm neither gender. Do you think the intention was to be transphobic or do you think maybe we don't have the language yet to communicate effectively? And I wonder sometimes if because of generational differences, we don't all share a language now where we can say what we mean. Now, I'm not trying to be an apologist. I just think it would be weird. You know, I also think it's very fucking weird that, you know, 
RuPaul seems to not to want to have trans women on her TV show. I don't get that. I don't understand it. It doesn't compute with me at all. But then again, she's basically said it, right? So it's like, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to <laughs> hear this person that I admire say this thing that I so firmly and strongly disagree with. Um, and, and I look at her career and her life and I'm like, wait a second. She's surrounded by trans women who are her sisters, you know, and she has Candace Kane on the show and she has trans women. So I don't get it. I don't get that. that. Um, so I wish, yeah, I guess I, I sometimes I wish instead of having to make a decision on whether or not someone's good or bad, we all had a chance to maybe talk more about it, but we don't often get that chance, you know? I agree. And I think it comes down to what you were saying about language. Not only, not only do we not have a common language, but the language and the, and the vocabulary is, is evolving so quickly now because of, of social media and the internet. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but it, it almost makes it overwhelming when you're trying to put everything together in your brain to to kind of come to a conclusion about what about where you fall in in the discussion so my wow. my i agree with you i think i i would really love to see uh a conversation start to happen where it's like okay how can we bridge this gap to kind of understand where you're coming from and uh, maybe come up with language that that serves the purpose you're trying to actually articulate. Yeah, 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 yeah. But who knows? I don't know. <laughs> and I mean, it, it it gets very like complicated. Um, yeah, I mean, but again, I think the more interesting thing is to have have the conversations. Agreed. Um, so I have I have a couple. If you're down for it. I have a couple sure. of rapid fire questions to to wrap okay. up this little this little conversation we've had. Um, these okay. are totally random questions. Answer them however you like. I'm just okay. going to throw them at you and you hit it back. If you had to die in a horror movie, how would you want to go? Oh, um, if I had to die in a horror movie, how would I want to go? Oh God! I think I would want to. I think I would want to die in my sleep, a la <laughs> a nightmare. I'd want like some sort of fantastic nightmare, you know, something something fantastical to happen. So you know, not not necessarily that Freddie killed me. No, I want Freddie to kill me. Yeah. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> So then that leads us to, if you could be any killer from a horror movie, which would you choose? Um, oh, gosh. So Freddy would be the obvious answer, but I think I might actually choose... Uh, gosh, that's really tough. I think I might choose Penhead. Mm. I like that idea. You know, Pinhead really wasn't that much of a killer, you know, which I liked, you know. He was a, sort of a demon. I mean, he did kill people. But yeah, I'll choose Pinhead. I think it's a good choice. Uh, it, this one's a tough one. So this one might take a moment to put together. If you could rewrite the ending to any movie, horror or otherwise, that you've seen, which movie would you change? 
Oh my goodness. That is so, uh, wow. If I could rewrite the ending to any movie. You know, I actually would probably choose Showgirls because the third act of Showgirls, it's this amazing movie, but the, the third act kicks Nomi into this revenge moment, and she's taking revenge because her friend is violently raped. And so I would rewrite it so that that rape scene never, ever happens because it was so unnecessary hmm. and there was no need for it. So I would rewrite the third act of Showgirls, mostly so I could get rid of the rape scene. Fair. Uh, which drag queen would you want to play you in a Hallmark movie of your life? And why is it not Hecklina? <laughs> well, Hecklina's way too old. Exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, gosh, I would I would have to say, uh, well, probably one of my drag daughters. I'd either want, you know, Jinx Monsoon or Bob the Drag Queen to play me because I think they would, first of all, get a big kick out of doing it. And um, <laughs> yeah, I, would, I, would, I would love to see exactly how they did that. <laughs> I would like to see it too. <laughs> yeah. And one final one. Yeah, we've got one more. If you okay. could haunt one place for the rest of eternity after you die, where would you want that to be? Oh, wow. One place for all of eternity after I die. Hmm. I guess I would probably say the Castro Theater. Because then I could watch movies all the time. It seems <laughs> like... It'd be harder to get bored, you know, if I was constantly still being entertained. Do you have any scary stories from the Castro? I imagine a place like that's got to have ghosts and spooks. Well, people, people definitely have stories from there. Uh, I don't personally. Um, so, but I've I've heard more than one person say they've been approached by an usher who tells them the balcony is closed. And then when they go downstairs to ask, like, why the balcony is closed, people are like, we don't know what you're talking about. So there's, there's apparently this, like, queen up up in the balcony who haunts the balcony and, <laughs> and tells people, you know, to leave. <laughs> or it's some gay goes in there and, and wants the balcony to himself for God knows what reason. Exactly. But apparently this ghost uh, exists. Um yeah, I haven't really experienced too much. I will say that when you own and live in your own haunted attraction, it does not make it less scary. In fact, I will walk through that haunted attraction to get from A to B, and especially if the lights are on, meaning the haunt lights are on and the, the regular work lights are off, you forget where you've left a mannequin. You forget where there's, you know, and I will sometimes be the one to like walk around the corner and scream my ass off, you know. <laughs> but I forget to see, you know, uh, what I think is a ghost. I sometimes think I see ghosts, but then I'm like, oh, I'm looking at a reflection in the window or whatever, you know. Yeah, everybody has those moments. Yeah. I have one final request. And uh, okay. forgive me if I, if I, butcher this if i'm not mistaken you have an interesting story about taking your mom to see christine is that right <laughs> it's actually even weirder than that it's that my mother 
came on uh, the first ever Queens Overboard drag cruise that Hecklina and I produced. So we're on this cruise with a ton of drag queens, and the headliner entertainer on the cruise is Christine, who if anyone knows who Christine is, you know she is a vile, pornographic (laughs) monster of a character. (laughs) Sings about, you know, getting, you know, things in her butthole. She actually has a music video where she is in a butthole, you know, uh, and, you know, it, it, she's just really X-rated and, and nasty. And um, so Paul, the artist who plays Christine, is so different than Christine, very, very sweet and loves moms and grandmas and, you know, this and that. So Paul and my mother on this cruise become totally attached at the cunt, you know, like they're just like <laughs> constantly, you know, like to the point where I was almost getting jealous, you know, like, like they are like going to lunch together. They're sitting by the pool together. They're, you know, they're, they're having deep conversations. They're going to see entertaining things and they sat, sat on the beach together, this and that. Well, Christine's show is at the end of the the cruise. I think my mom saw Christine like she got, oh, that's right. She got dressed in Christine drag which didn't really bother my mom because my mom's, you know, been around me my whole life, but she didn't see Christine perform. So Christine's performance was at the end of the trip and Diane, my mother, gets there. You've met my mother. Oh my I God, have. my mom got totally drunk at that show that you produced. That's how I know this story and I needed you to tell it. <laughs> so my mom, that was one of the only times I've ever seen my mom like really drunk ever was at that, at your show. <laughs> she got tanked. And I was so, I was so like bad by it because she usually just doesn't really drink that that much i mean she yeah. drinks not like that anyway um so my mom gets gets her chair and plants it right in the front of the stage and me and hecklina and other people are like what are you doing like you don't want to sit there sit at the back you don't even want to see this show she's like i love paul and i'm here to see paul perform and we're like no, this is not <laughs> paul and you're not gonna you're gonna regret this so christine comes in and does her opening number and it's she has a giant like thing of balloons, like helium balloons, you know, behind her. And she turns around at one point, bends over, and you realize that the balloons are attached to a butt plug that's up her ass that she proceeds to like push out, you know, like with her butt facing my mother. She pushes out the butt plug and then kind of like holds the butt plug and like extends it out to my mom and is like, for you, Diane, you know, and the butt <laughs> plug kind of like floats out because it's on helium balloons and my mother takes it and is holding the butt plug. I'm like ready to die. <laughs> well, my, apparently my mom was very entertained by the whole show. She liked it. So she told me this story when, when oh, you, did. you came out to do my show, what makes me pissy in yeah. Philadelphia years ago. And your mom came up from, from Maryland to see yeah. the show and to see you. And she was absolutely lovely. Your mom is the sweetest. Um, and you mentioned she got, she got a bit, uh, a bit yeah. floofy. Ipsy, yeah. Yeah. No, drunk. <laughs> <laughs> and while I guess you were getting dressed or something, she told me this story and I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. my God, this is the best thing that anyone has ever told me. I, yeah, I think she likes it because my parents always, I mean, in addition to the haunted houses and all that stuff, like they were almost a little too into my stuff, if that makes sense. Like, <laughs> 
Like I remember one time a friend came home with me from college or something and like they were like, oh, my God, why did you leave all your CDs at home? You know, and I was like, what do you mean? And they were like, the uh, look, you know, the cure, Bjork, um, Nine Inch Nails. I'm like, no, those are my parents. Like they <laughs> were like into keeping up with my stuff, you know, and yeah, like so I think, you know, especially with the drag, especially my mom, she's like she's into, you know, not being shocked i mean i'll never forget hecklina blew a guy once on stage not knowing that my mom was in the audience <laughs> hecklina was mortified like, really <laughs> when she got mortified she could not believe that that had happened because like the next night we all went to dinner and hecklina was like i didn't know you guys were coming you know to the club like why didn't you tell me she'd kind of forgotten that she'd done that and diane was like well we arrived just as you were blah 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 you know and hecklina was like she actually left the table and didn't come back she was so embarrassed yeah oh wow i'm kind of shocked that hecklina was that embarrassed only in front of moms and especially my mom like Mm. they have a very special you know connection hecklina and mom yeah well Good for her. Thank you so, so, so much for joining us, Peaches. I can't yeah. tell you what it means to have you here. And I believe me, I'm going to hold you to doing a watch long of All About Evil because I love that movie. <laughs> okay. um, I love it. And we we are going to get everyone we know to watch this movie because it is it is just the best thing you'll you'll ever watch. Um oh, thank you. So thank you again so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Good to see you guys. You too. I'm so thrilled that Peaches joined us for that interview because it was so unbelievably entertaining. It was so much fun. I had a really, really good time talking to her. Yeah, this was your first time meeting her. Yeah, I had never met Peaches before. I had heard of Peaches before. Yeah, many people in the queer community have. Um, Peaches has been a a longtime friend of of mine and David's, and uh, we we just love her to death. I don't have enough nice things to say about her, but... uh, what were you, what was what was your favorite part of, of this little interview? <laughs> because we t- we talked about so much stuff. Oh She's just God. one of those people that like so easy to chat with and and has the most amazing stories. I think when she was talking about idol worship was probably my favorite part, just because like that is something that I would never be able to do because I can't talk to people I like. <laughs> So to like live vicariously through her for a minute was a lot of fun. Yeah. It it's it can be challenging interviewing people who you either have a lot of respect for or a lot of adoration for, you know, um people who seem kind of uh, uh I want to say otherworldly because they're not paranormal, but like <laughs> almost like they exist on a different plane. You know what I yeah. mean? Like like we're not we're not living in the same world, but um that's kind of the wonderful thing about Peaches is she's made this amazing career out of uh, working with just the most talented people and and producing the most amazing content. I loved learning more about Midnight Mass mm-hmm. and uh, every, every, the fact that she is just she has this like innate entrepreneurial ability. She just knows how to like turn something. Like, turn nothing into something. She can just be like, well, I'm going to do this thing. And then she just produces it to its max capacity and and 
nails it. I have so much respect for her. I think she's such a fucking talented queen. I also, I loved getting her to tell the story about her mom with Christine. (laughs) (laughs) That was kind of amazing. If you guys don't know Christine, uh, you should definitely look her up. She is a, an, a somewhat infamous drag queen. Uh, and I believe she's, if I'm not mistaken, I believe she's originally from uh, Texas. I can't remember, but I, I, God, I can't remember. If you want to see Christine, you can find her on Instagram. It's Christine spelled C-H-R-I-S-T-E-E-N-E underscore official on Instagram. Go look at her pictures and watch some of her videos. First of all, she's fucking hysterical. She actually is very sweet and very intelligent and just bizarre. Like, frankly, bizarre. Um, But I love, love, love Christine. I've always wanted to see her live. She is kooky, crazy batshit. And I I would love nothing better than to see her live. Um, But the story about her mom accepting the butt plug from Christine. And if you've ever, if you've heard Christine's voice... It's even funnier for to imagine her saying, this is for you, Diane. Like, to <laughs> his, uh, Peaches' mother. Because she she has this, like, very put-on character-y voice mm-hmm. that is so unmistakable and so entertaining. Uh, you all need to go check out Christine on Instagram and just let me know what you think because it's fucking phenomenal. Uh yeah, I was really just blown away by everything, especially like the story with Natasha Leone. Yeah, no, um, Natasha Leone is one of my favorite people in the world, so I was insanely jealous of how the do you entire feel, conversation. How do you feel <laughs> knowing that you're two degrees away from Natasha Leone now? <laughs> a little gayer. Actually. A little gayer. <laughs> I feel even a little more queer. Uh, uh, that's fair. I, I'm down for that. Uh, I was heartbroken when I found out that Natasha Leone isn't actually a lesbian. I know. It is a little devastating. Especially since she plays one so often. And so well. I know. I wonder if she's like queer to any capacity. I don't know. I don't know either. If you're Natasha Leone and you're listening. (laughs) You're listening. (laughs) If you're Natasha Leone and you're listening, we want to know just as as per course. We just want to know that you're listening. Yeah. Because that would make my life. I know it would be it would be truly wonderful. I uh, I know we've said it a hundred times, but you and I are both huge fans of. But I'm a cheerleader. Yes, uh, and it's such a great movie. Lots and lots of love to everybody in that movie, especially Natasha Lyonne and Claire Duvall. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed that that conversation as much as we did. It's always just a fucking joy to listen to to Peach's talk and to get to chat with her. Um, I have some funny stories that that Peaches has told to me in the past uh, publicly, so they're not secret. Maybe one day I'll share them on the podcast. Uh, one of them is about Lady Bunny, <laughs> <laughs> and I'll, I'll I'll share that story one day. Um, so that's it for us today, kids. I I, I don't want to eat up too much of the time because th- we did do a very yeah, extensive we interview and I don't want to cut any of it. So uh, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. We will be back on Monday on Patreon with a brand new mini, mini microsode and another brand new episode right here next Thursday. So until then, 
stay spoopy and remember. The movies she makes are real. You're getting this in close up, right? The actors she kills get <laughs> final cut. <laughs> in the show, it's always in need of some fresh blood. What the? F- it's only a movie. My Spooky Gay Family features music by Nate Walker, artwork by David Elon, and this episode contains clips from All About Evil, written and directed by Joshua Grinnell, 2010. Please subscribe on iTunes, leave us a nice message, and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Patreon. My Spooky Gay Family is a product of Barbara Duel Productions. Barbara Duel Productions.